This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. 122 this morning as we continue our study on the Psalms of Ascent. And if you're just joining us, these 14 Psalms of Ascent are called Psalms of Ascent because they were like a playlist for the Jews as they ascended to Jerusalem three times a year for the three annual feasts. We can even see that intent in the movement of these psalms. In in Psalm 120, a couple weeks ago, we saw the psalmist lamenting where he lived, longing to be with the Lord. And then in Psalm 121, last week, we saw the psalmist en route, making his way through the dangerous mountains and valleys and hills, looking to the Lord for hope. And this week, if you just glance at verse 1 and 2, the psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to Jerusalem, or let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So he's finally there. He started at home. He made his travel. Psalm 122, he's now finally there. But I have to admit, when I first read this, I kind of wondered how he meant it. Because it depends on where you put the emphasis, doesn't it? Like, I'm sure you can remember the last time you took a long trip with your family. Every parent er learns early in their career not to let their kids know they're going anywhere. Otherwise, it is brutal for however many days that is. Um, They don't sleep. They don't eat. And then, of course, five minutes after you finally get on the road, they're like, yeah, exactly. And then every time you leave a rest stop, the one kid in the car who swore to God he didn't have to go to the bathroom, I ain't got to go to the bathroom. Not to mention, as soon as you leave for a road trip, it's like for some reason everything you say gets heard the opposite. Like, okay, hold on to your drink. All right, I'll spill it everywhere. Share this with your brothers and sisters. That's mine. Pass your trash up front. No. By the time you get where you're going, you know, the back seat of your car is kind of like a third world country. There's starving children, <laughs> trash blowing around. One of the little ones has set up a little dictatorship in the third row. <laughs> so when I first read this, when I first read verse 1, I was kind of wondering if the psalmist was saying, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Kind of like then we got on the road and I wasn't so glad. But I think verse 2 tells us he really meant it. It's almost like he was more excited than the kids to get there. That word glad in verse 1, it's the same Hebrew word as rejoice. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I was overjoyed when they told me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And now that he's reached his destination, he says in verse 2, we're we're finally standing in the gates of Jerusalem. We're here. See, the psalmist couldn't wait to get to Jerusalem. That's what he says in verse 2. He's ecstatic to finally be at the gates of Jerusalem. And then in verse 3, he's marveling at Jerusalem uh, being built as a city. Firmly bound together. And then in verse 6, he's going to pray for the peace to continue in Jerusalem. 
So make no mistake, this psalmist is giddy to finally be in Jerusalem. So I don't know about you, but when I see someone this excited about what they're doing, I, I can't help but think I want one. I want, I want a Jerusalem. I mean, can you remember the last time you were that excited to go somewhere? I mean, when was the last time the kids were telling you, we'll get there when we get there, Dad? So I couldn't help but wonder this week if this psalmist is excited, to, this excited to finally be in Jerusalem. Then where's our Jerusalem? I want to be that excited to go somewhere. I want to look forward to something like he does. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at why this psalmist is so excited to be in Jerusalem so that we can answer the question, where is our Jerusalem? Where is our Jerusalem? So look at verse 1 and 2 again, where we see that this psalmist is, is so excited to be in Jerusalem because that's where God lived. Because that's where God lived. He says in verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And then verse 2, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, we made it. Now it takes a, a little imagination for us to understand why the psalmist was so excited because we don't think of God being only in one place. That's a little foreign to us. But back then, God only lived in the temple or in the tabernacle before the temple was built. Uh, more specifically, he lived in this little room at the back of the temple or the, the, the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And God's presence hovered over the Ark of the Covenant is what the Bible tells us. So the point is, that unless this psalmist was where the ark was, he wasn't with God. So think of it this way. I'm sure there has been a time where you felt distant from God. A time where the problems and hassles and stresses of this world just felt big and heavy and mean. A time when it felt like God might as well have been a hundred or thousands of miles away. But imagine... If at one of those times I told you that tomorrow you were going to be nearer, physically nearer to God than you were today. And then what if tomorrow I told you the next day you were actually going to be in the same building as God. And then on that day I said not only are you going to be in the same building as God, but you're going to be, there's going to be just a, a, a thin curtain between you and the presence of God. If you knew that was going to happen in a few days, would, would that cause a little anticipation maybe to build up in you? Maybe, maybe think a little harder about what you packed? The morning you were about to leave for that trip, would you shrug it off and be like, nah, I'm too tired. I'll go be in God's presence another day. I don't think so. And neither did the psalmist because today he was finally standing in the city where God lived. And he can't hold it together, he's so excited. Unlike Psalm 120, where he started, he was no longer around people who hated peace. Today, he was standing in the gates of the Jerusalem uh, where, where, the, where the Lord lived, where the Lord's house was. Today was the day that he could worship God unhindered. Today was the day that he could be around people who wanted to worship God just like he did. 
Today, he would enter the presence of God in the house of the Lord and have nothing else to do but worship with other people who wanted to worship. So he shouts, I was overjoyed when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord and we're here. We're finally here. So again, I ask, where's our Jerusalem? Where's that place for us? Because that's not the only reason he's so excited to be in Jerusalem. Look at verses 3 through 5, where he also says he's so excited because that's where the thrones of David were. Because that's where the thrones of David were. He says in verse 3, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Now, the way he keeps going on and on and on about Jerusalem, I, I, I don't know about you, but the psalmist sounds a little bit to me like that friend who goes on a vacation somewhere, and when they come back, they can't quit telling you about how everything they saw was the best in the world. And, and this place that they went was the best that they've ever seen. Like, like we went to Jerusalem and saw the temple, and it's the best temple ever. And then we went over here. Look, we ate kebabs. See, I'll show you a picture. It was the best kebabs ever. And then look over here. These are the thrones of David. They're the best, best thrones ever. But why is he so excited about the thrones of David in Jerusalem? Why does that get such a rise out of him? you guys go to Washington, D.C. and decide to write something that will last for eternity? Like, yay, we're where the president is. No. So why? Well, look first at just what he says. He says in verse 3 that Jerusalem is a city bound firmly together. And then in verse 4, he says that it was decreed that the tribes go up there. And then he says in verse 5, that's where the thrones of David are set. So what does he mean by all of that? What does all of that mean together? Well, he's talking about the authority of David. It was the king who held the city together, who, who the city was built around. And he says the tribes go to Jerusalem because that's where the king said they should go. It's kind of like when your boss wants to have a meeting with you. He doesn't come to your office. You go to his. And all of that is because, verse 5, that's where the power was. That's where the seat of authority was. But did you notice what all that authority was aimed towards? Did you notice what all of that authority was going at? He says at the end of verse 4 that those thrones made decrees. And those decrees were for the tribes to come up to Jerusalem. And the tribes were to come up to Jerusalem, why? To give thanks. To worship. In other words, the authority, all this authority that he's describing was all geared around worship. In other words, listen, the psalmist is excited to finally be in Jerusalem. Because not only was that where God lived... Not only was that where the house of the Lord was, but that's where the king lived. And the king governed worship. The king regulated worship. Now, I know for some of you that probably sounds funny 
to say that the king regulated worship. Because when we think of worship, we think that it was always the priests that handled all of that. But that's not entirely accurate. If you think about back in 1st or 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, when, when worship was restored and renewed and high places torn down and idols torn down, who does the Bible say did all of that? Was it the priests? No, it was the kings. The kings were the ones who restored worship where it should be, who decided where worship should go. For better or worse, it was the kings who regulated worship. And the psalmist is thrilled to be in Jerusalem because this king is doing a great job of it. He's doing it right. Worship is pure and structured and united. The city is well defended, so the people are not worried about being attacked. So, so the people can worship in peace is what he's saying. Everyone's on the same page. They're all united. They're all bound together about who they're worshiping and why they're worshiping him. Because the king is on his throne, regulating and guarding and uniting that worship. The psalmist is so excited because he's now standing in the city where the king defended and protected and kept worship the way it should be. In fact, look at verses 6 through 9. That's why he prays for peace in Jerusalem. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord your God, I will seek your good. So he kind of wraps the house of the Lord and the, and the rule of Jerusalem all up together in this, in this prayer for peace, for peace to stay there. Now that word peace there, it means more than we understand it to mean. It's, it's not just the absence of conflict in the Hebrew language. That word peace there is the word shalom, which you might be familiar with. It, it means something more like everything is how it should be. Everything is going the way it should. It's a state of wholeness or completeness. You could say that it's, that it's things are the way they were created to be. In other words, follow the psalmist's logic here. He's praying for the sake of his brothers and sisters that Jerusalem would remain at peace. Because when Jerusalem is at peace, the throne of David is at peace. And when the thrones of David are at peace, the house of the Lord is at peace. Which means when Jerusalem is at peace, worship is at peace. And when worship is at peace, the people are at peace. So the thrones of David and whether or not they are at peace dictates whether or not worship is at peace. And he's in the place where it is. Worship is at peace. So I ask again, where's our Jerusalem? Where the people are at peace because the king is regulating and guarding and keeping worship pure. Everybody's on the same page of who they're worshiping and why they're worshiping him. Because we know for a fact that this psalmist's prayer for peace sadly didn't last. We know that for sure. It wasn't long before the kings began to falter, before the kings stumbled in their leadership and, 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 and caused the, the unity and the, uh, and the worship and the peace of the people to suffer greatly. That didn't take long at all. For example, 
it would only be about 25 or 30 years before the unity that the psalmist speaks of, before this city that was bound firmly together was split apart by weak kings. It was actually David's grandson who divided the nation into northern and southern tribes and, and disrupted the unity of worship. And it wasn't long after that before Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylons because the thrones of David continued to be weakened by corrupt and faithless kings. And what happened when the king fell? What happened when the throne of David was no longer at peace? The house of the Lord was systematically disassembled and worship ceased. And the thrones of David never really were rebuilt in Jerusalem again. Which is why, even though the temple was rebuilt, it was again disassembled and worship was again corrupted by the Romans. So what happened? Where's our Jerusalem? Do we just not get one? Was that just something that happened for a while? And we got to be okay with ruins? Well, you have to understand that part of the reason that this psalm is written that way, think of it this way. One guy said that the Old Testament narratives are intended to tell us about God. But the Psalms are intended to tell us how to feel about God. So we learn who God is in the narratives, and then the Psalms tell us how to feel about that God. And, and part of the purpose of, of Psalm 122 is, is to produce a kind of longing in its readers, a desire to be in this place, a longing for a better Jerusalem that wasn't... Uh, in danger of being sacked or, or worshipped that wasn't in danger of being disrupted because of bad kings. I'd say think about it this way. There are certain locations where you can put anything because the location is special. And then there are things that are so special that wherever you put them, that location becomes special. For example, you could put a mediocre restaurant on the beach. The beach or the ocean, it's a special location. You could put a, a mediocre restaurant on the beach, and that restaurant would be special because of where it was located. On the other hand, there's absolutely nothing special about the southern end of Nevada. It is, an, it is a horrid wasteland. You drop a few casinos in there, bring in some high rollers... And all of a sudden, the southern end of Nevada becomes a notable place called Las Vegas. Jerusalem was similar to that. There, there wasn't anything inherently special about the geographic location of Jerusalem. What made Jerusalem special was who and what was there. Listen, the psalmist just said it. He said, I, I'm so excited to be here in Jerusalem because it was where God and the king lived. That doesn't answer our question. Where's our Jerusalem? I say that just to say it doesn't have to be in the physical location of Jerusalem. The exciting place is wherever the king and God is. 
a little while after this psalmist lived. Only a couple hundred years, really. When things started to fall apart and Jerusalem began to decline, Isaiah the prophet said this about another king who would rule one day. And I want you to listen to the familiar language with our psalm this morning. You've already heard most of this. He said in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, You have multiplied the nation. Listen to the, listen to the language. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. Why? Why are they glad? Because the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's meaning everything that has to do with war will be burned because there's peace. Why is there peace? Because to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and listen, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of that peace, of that government, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, no corruption, no defilement, nothing. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Brothers and sisters, if you're unsure of who Isaiah is speaking of, Matthew made it very clear in chapter 4 that Isaiah was talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king who Isaiah said would occupy the throne of David for eternity, thereby reigning in peace forever. Jesus is the king for whom the thrones of David were set. And not only is Jesus the king forever sitting on this throne of David, but John was very clear in the first chapter of his gospel that God no longer lived in the temple because Jesus was God walking around. He said in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, I'm sure you guys know this, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was God and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him has, was not anything made that was made. Jesus was God. Not like God, was God. If you're in the made category, if you have been created, Jesus created you. And not only was, was, was God no longer in the temple because, he was, because Jesus was God, but Jesus did what the priests did. But He did it perfectly. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, beginning in verse, beginning in verse 11, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Why? Because by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Listen, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's the temple, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to him in full assurance of faith, just like the psalmist. Which means not only was Jesus the king, but he was also the temple and the priests. In other words, brothers and sisters, when we hear how glad this psalmist is to be in Jerusalem, when we hear, when we, when we long to have a, a Jerusalem like he did, when we wonder where our Jerusalem is, listen, the answer is Jesus is our Jerusalem. Jesus is our Jerusalem. Just like the temple, Jesus is the only place we can go to have our sins forgiven. Just like the temple, Jesus is the only place we can go to be with God. Just like the temple, Jesus is the only place we can go to worship God. And just like the king in Jerusalem, Jesus is the one uniting his people. And just like the king in Jerusalem, Jesus is the one decreeing worship. And just like the king in Jerusalem, Jesus is the one regulating worship by his word. Jesus is our Jerusalem. And if that's the case, if Jesus is our Jerusalem, then all I want to do briefly is walk backwards through this psalm and see what it means to us. For example, if you look at verses 3 through 5 again, if Jesus is our Jerusalem, the question is, then is he the one who is regulating our worship? If Jesus is our Jerusalem, is he the one regulating our worship? Because the truth is, if we're honest, our worship can often be fickle. Our worship can often be wandering and conditional. Oftentimes we want to worship a Savior who bails us out of the hard parts, but not a king who tells us what to do. Often we want to worship a savior who rescues us from injustice, but not a king who says, I want you to experience injustice. We want to worship a savior who defeats our enemies, but not a king who commands us to forgive and love them. We run to Jesus in times of difficulty and ignore Him in times of demand. We cry out to Jesus in times of heartache and forget about Him in times of plenty. We plead with Jesus when someone hurts us, and we disregard Him when He convicts us of our hurtfulness. Does your king regulate your worship? Does he determine when you do and, and don't go to worship? Does he de determine how you worship? But we also have to ask if he's the king who has bound you firmly together. Is he the king that has united you, not only with every believer in this room, but with every believer in the world who has ever lived? The king who, even if you went to somebody who didn't speak the same language, you could say Jesus, and if they knew him, you'd immediately have a special connection. That kind of king. But more importantly, is he the king who has united you with himself? Is he the king that has bound you so firmly together with God that nobody can remove you from him? 
And is he the priest who, because there was no sacrifice worthy enough, no sacrifice sufficient to forgive your sins, is he the priest who offered his own body as payment? Is he the priest who daily continues to guard you and lead you and guide you through this life? Is he the priest who by his own blood keeps you so that not even hell itself could pull you away from the arms of the Father? Because if your answer to any of those questions is yes, then Jesus is your Jerusalem. Which means there's only one more question we need to ask based on this psalm. It's a really simple one. We find it back in verse 1. That is, how glad are you that you get to be in your Jerusalem every day? Every day. How glad are you that your priest and your king never demands that you come to him, but instead he goes with you everywhere you go? How overjoyed are you that at any given moment of any given day, you can worship your God no matter what you're doing? Because you're in your Jerusalem, you're with Jesus the King and the priest. Stapling some papers, why not worship God? Digging a hole, why not worship God? Writing a paper, why not worship God? Cleaning a toilet, worship God. Getting yelled at, why not? Worship God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our Jerusalem. There is no other Savior like Him. None. Every other God in this world wants you to do something, wants you to go to Him. Yours is the only one that came to you. And yours is the only one that stays with you, even though you remain a sinner. He is the source of our salvation, just like Jerusalem. He is the stillness when, when we are in storms, just like Jerusalem. He is where we find healing for our heartaches, comfort for our chaos, and peace for our pain. He is where we find the love of the Father and the strength of the King. He is where we find the one who made all things and the root of Jesse. And he is where we find the temple who was destroyed and the one who rebuilt it. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. May we be that glad every day.